Okay, well, good morning. Good evening, ladies. It's good to see you guys. Um, I'm so thankful that you're here. We're studying the book of Hosea this year. And what I want to do first here is talk to you about the schedule that's on your table. Casey Weens uh, put together a schedule. Does everybody have one? Um, there should be plenty on your table. If you don't, I've got more copies. Uh, but I did want to explain a little bit about the study. Uh, the way the study is works out, it's uh, one lesson every other week is what you'll have to do in preparation. So tonight you'll see, and unfortunately this is a schedule for the Tuesday lessons, just transfer what's on Tuesday to Wednesday and that's where you'll be. So it's it's not too hard to juggle that. Today on the 9th or on the 10th, you see we're having a teaching day and we're doing an introduction. Next week on the 17th is when you'll need to be ready with all of lesson one finished. So if you didn't get the schedule until tonight, you might have to hurry a little bit to get that first lesson in. But then every other week is when you do the lesson. So you'll do part one one week, part two the other week. And as long as you do that, you'll be able to stay up with the study. Don't try to get this done the night before. You will never be able to do that. But it's a beautiful study. Now, one of the things about the study is Christy likes to... Um, camp on a few verses and so she doesn't write the study through the whole book of Hosea like we usually inductively walk through the whole book right well this time she stops and she camps out on a few verses at a time and it's a beautiful devotional study but I felt like part of going through Hosea is being able to go through the whole book of Hosea I want to understand Hosea better so on the teaching days we're going to walk through the book of Hosea I'm going to teach through it. That means I'm not teaching to your lesson. I'm teaching to the book of Hosea. So we're going to walk through Hosea. So don't get confused if you think, wow, that didn't apply to my lesson. It may or may not. Um, Some people like that because they say, well, Michelle, you always give us the answers. I was like, well, sometimes I can't help it because they're just (laughs) part of what I teach. Whenever we do studies, I always purposely do not look at the study you guys are doing because I don't want to teach to that lesson. And it's just human nature that when you've looked at something, now you're in, it's in your mind and you want to comment on it or teach to it. I try not to ever do that. So if I ever do overlap with what's in the study, it's not because I looked ahead and thought I needed to tell you the answers because I know I don't. And I don't want to steal your time in the word and just being able to let God work in your heart on what he would desire you to learn. Now on the teaching days, on the Tuesday teaching days, which will be Wednesday for you guys, You'll also see a passage, like on the 9th it says, Teaching Day Introduction. So today I'm just going to introduce the book of Hosea to you. On the 23rd, which for you guys will be the 24th, it says Hosea 1 to 3. So what that's saying is that if you want to be a little bit more familiar with what's going to be talked about in the teaching, go ahead and just read chapters 1 through 3. You don't have to study it. You don't have to memorize it. You don't have to write it out or anything. Just read it so you're a little bit more familiar with what we'll be teaching on that night. So that's optional reading. You don't have to do that. But if you do want to kind of follow along in the book of Hosea, that's what you'll need to do. Um, But these lessons that Casey wrote out, the assignments are really good. If you can give 15 minutes a day and then understanding that Saturday or Sunday you have a meditate and pray day. So she has kind of a catch-up day also occasionally in there. Um, 15 minutes a day and you'll be able to walk through this lesson. Um, If there's ladies that want to come on in, they can come on in. 
Um, come on in. What? <laughs> They're telling me to come on in. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I just want to make sure that it's really self-explanatory. But the other thing I really want to avoid is I don't want somebody saying, I just don't have time, but I want to come. I'm not saying that there's not going to be weeks that you're just too busy. But my goal is, is to really get you in the Word. Not just to come to listen, but that you're in the Word for yourself and soaking it in. So that's why I say if you can even just do 15 minutes. And don't worry about doing another devotional. Honestly, Christie's study is a beautiful devotional study. And it could be your devotions for this semester, for January through April. Make it your devotions. If that's the way you need to work it in. But somehow work in that time for the lesson. I think you will appreciate her heart. Um, I appreciate the, the questions. And uh, Pam was just saying how she did earlier as she goes through the questions. Um, and then there may be a few you kind of star and just think, I'm going to go back and look at those later. Because I want to marinate on them. I want to think about it. Christy has a lot of questions that will cause you to think and to ponder about it. And you want to just really reflect. And some of her questions even say, pray and reflect about this. So go at your own speed, but be careful to not get behind. That's where the schedule really comes in handy. So um, any questions about the schedule for anybody? Need some more schedules? Mm-hmm. We've got tons of schedules. Here you go. Mm-hmm. And we pass them around. And if you need more handouts, we've got those too. So um but, and if somebody didn't, has more questions about the schedule, just, uh, I can say afterwards, you can ask me, and we can go over the schedule, and that'll be good. So, um, but what I want to start now is um, just opening and doing an inter- introduction to the book of Hosea for you. Um, next week, or two weeks from tonight, I'll teach on chapters one through three. But tonight's just going to be an introduction, and um, I was really excited to do the book of Hosea. And then I realized um, when I started thinking about it, Bart called me and he's like, just make sure. And then he gave me a couple lists of things to make sure. And I was like, oh, now I'm nervous about Hosea. <laughs> but I'm not. Bart's a wonderful leader and it was very clear what he's looking for. So um, it was good. It was a very good direction. But I wanted just to talk about Hosea here for a few minutes with you. And then at your table time, and I didn't remember to tell you this, but at your table time, On my outline, normally I'm going to have a couple questions that I'll put on your outline that have to do with the lecture time. So you don't have to do any work ahead on them, but it will be reflective questions based on what was taught. So at your tables, you guys can cover that. Now tonight, there's nothing on the outline. But normally, there will be a couple reflective questions that you can just use for table discussion. Um, and then have prayer time. I'm hoping that during the table time weeks, there's a lot more time for prayer time and to just really share and come alongside and fellowship and encourage one another in the Lord. So uh, anyway, we'll start out now with Hosea. Hosea introduces to a family and one that I think in our sin-drenched society, we can honestly say is a dysfunctional family, to put it mildly. Hosea is going to use, or God is going to use, this example of family to reveal himself to the people of Israel. By using a portrayal of Hosea's marriage and the family, God draws a parallel to himself. But he draws a parallel not as an autocratic father who's demanding or punishing. He doesn't draw himself a parallel as a father that's surrounded by a loving family either. He shows us a parallel of himself as a husband 
who's been abandoned by the wife that he loves, and as a father with whom his children have become strangers and yet are still living within his house. That's the picture of God that we're going to get from the book of Hosea. Now, it might be easy to ask yourself, why couldn't God have made the children of Israel be more obedient? Why couldn't he have prevented their exodus into the idol worship? Couldn't he have done that? Because God can do anything, right? He created them. But I think if we ask that question, we're not understanding the nature of God. And we have to understand God's nature, especially as we look at this book, Hosea, because there's some really hard things we're going to read about and learn about. Um, We need to understand his nature. God never desires to love someone with a love that binds them to himself. He never wants to force that love on man. Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, knowledge about me, not burnt offerings. God desires us to know him and to want him. And that's how God chose it to be. He didn't want puppets that he could just force his will on us and make us capitulate and show love to him that wasn't true love. God desires to woo us to himself. And we'll see this in the book of Hosea. He's not seeking control. He's seeking a relationship with us. Throughout the book of Hosea, we're going to see that God's heart longs to be loved by Israel. But sin demands payment, and Israel has sinned greatly. And as a sinful man, we don't have a real good understanding of the price that sin demands before a holy, just God. So eliminating the choices of Israel and the choices to sin could only come about through a great cost by God. And in order to understand what God had to do, you have to reflect on the cross. And I think Hosea is going to take us back to the cross as we look through this this book and we realize the portrait of Christ and of God that we're seeing. The cross was a great burden to the Father. We know that just in Christ's prayer when he said, My Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. There was agony in Christ. Christ knew what he was facing. And it wasn't just the torture of the cross. It was the separation from his Father that he had never experienced before. It was God separating himself from God. How amazing is that? And yet that's the price it took so that God could pour his wrath out on Christ who was God himself. It was an amazing thought, and yet that's the price it took for reconciliation. So God couldn't have just eliminated Israel's sin had he wished. Sin had a price. So Hosea is going to picture for this, all of this to us. It's going to show that God's message comes home to Hosea in a very personal way. Hosea is commanded to take up a great cost also in his personal life that mimics the cost that God takes on. God's going to command Hosea to marry a prostitute, something that would have gone against any expectation for a godly man. You would never tell your son, it's okay to marry that woman. Um, You just wouldn't do that. And yet that's what God asks of Hosea. It's shocking to see what God asks of Hosea. But it serves a purpose. It illustrates the relationship God finds himself in with the nation of Israel. God shows their unfaithfulness, as them prostituting themselves away from him. They're living in spiritual adultery against God who loves them. He's their father, 
And yet God is going to use challenging and unpleasant things in Hosea's life and in Hosea's marriage to demonstrate how vile and painful the sin of Israel is to God. You know, we think of God not liking sin, so we think of him as the judge. We don't realize the pain our sin brings to God. And you see this in the book of Hosea. You see God as that husband who, just like Hosea, is rejected, and and the wife, Israel, prostitutes herself. And as we go into the book of Hosea, the language of Hosea is a little graphic. There's certain words that I'm actually not even comfortable using, and yet Scripture uses it. And so I'm going to try to not shy away from it. One of those words is horridom, being called a whore. Gomer is called a whore in the Bible. And that's not a word that's easy to say or do you even want to hear it. Because our world takes words and attaches meanings to them that cause it to be filthy. But God takes words, and if he uses a word like that, it's for the power of the word to signify that Israel was a whore. But you know something that really pierced my heart as I've been studying this is when I look at myself in the book of Hosea, I'm not Hosea. I'm Gomer. My heart has prostituted itself against God. Hosea is so sobering because it's going to take us back and make us look like look at our own hearts in light of what we see in Israel. You can never look at Israel and just say, boy, am I thankful I'm not Israel, because you know what? We are Israel. We have the same heart issues. We've been given beautiful things, and we still long for other things. And one of the things about Israel is that they believed they were worshiping God. They believed God had given them everything, but they were worshiping the idols in place of God. And they were content with that. And my convicting thought was, Michelle, what other loves do you have besides God in your life? I love God. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I do these things. But I also love this and this and this. And God is telling Hosea to tell the people, to show the people, I'm a jealous God with my love. I don't want a divided heart. Israel had a divided heart, and they were content. And so my conviction was, what's my heart? What conviction is in my heart? And that was really convicting. So I think we're going to find that there's some real personal applications that we'll be encouraged about in Hosea. Hosea is going to marry a woman, Gomer, who's very superficial. She's motivated by money. She pursues other lovers, and she makes a mockery out of herself and out of Hosea. But this is all because God required this of Hosea. But despite her unfaithfulness, Hosea is told to still love her. And that's what God has done. In spite of our unfaithfulness, God has still loved us and pursued us. And so we're going to see that in the book of Hosea. The themes of Hosea, there's a lot of different themes. And I'll walk through these kind of quickly just so we um, have, I hope, a little bit of time at the end for your table time. But grief and sorrow. Hosea is going to experience the grief and sorrow, but we also see it in the heart of God. Anguish. Hosea conveys a sense of anguish, the pain he experiences because of the actions of his wife. 
Those also symbolize God's anguish over the unfaithfulness of the Israelites and honestly, I think, over the unfaithfulness of our hearts. Love and compassion. Despite her betrayal, Hosea loves and has compassion on Gomer. God tells him, go and love her. Initially, he says, go and obtain a wife. Now it's go and love her when he calls Hosea to go back to Gomer. The hope and redemption. Hosea has a strong message of hope and redemption. Reconciliation. Forgiveness is going to be a really strong theme in the book of Hosea. God extends the opportunity for forgiveness and restoration to the people of Israel. But the interesting thing in Hosea is the restoration isn't going to be for this generation. The hope is not offered for this generation because this generation has defiled God. And there's a judgment because of God's faithfulness to his word. There's a judgment that will come about. But there's a promise of restoration that also runs through Hosea. Very strong. God has a longing for restoration and reconciliation. And Hosea is going to point us to that ultimate restoration. So let's talk about the man Hosea. We don't know a lot about him. Um, The book opens. It doesn't explain him. It just says the word of the Lord came to Hosea and told him to go take a woman uh, that prostitutes herself a woman of adultery, and Hosea is called to do that. That's really all we know. He ministered during the different reigns of Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. If you go to the sheet on the kings that you all have, um, you'll see it's a list of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom um, kings. And so on that list, of course, I can't find mine now. Uh, Anyway, on that list, you'll be able to kind of follow who those kings are. I would encourage you to keep the list by you so that you can be thinking, especially initially in the first three chapters, about what's going on in Hosea's life. Um, His ministry was in the northern kingdom. That's who he's writing to. But they give us the list of kings in the southern kingdom. And I think what that implies is that even though Hosea is called to preach to the northern kingdom, His message is important to the southern kingdom in that it's a warning. Don't go the way of the northern kingdom because this will be as true for you as it was for them if you follow after what they are doing. So it's more of a warning to the southern kingdom, but he's writing to the northern kingdom. Amos, Isaiah, and Micah are probably prophets that are contemporaries of him during this time. Um, He was written during... um, I didn't write these down. Uh, He would have written, been written like 750 B.C. to 722, would have been somewhere around the prophetic ministry of Hosea. So um, that would have been the time that he was writing. The time that he's writing in Israel is a really prosperous time. So I was thinking about this. I had thought of the book of Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities. It opens up where it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. You know what? In a lot of ways, Israel could be summed up by that. It was the best of times in that they were very prosperous. God had given them abundance in the land. The abundance he had promised, they were like at the pinnacle. They had recaptured some land that had been taken from them. They had plenty of harvest. They were being blessed by God, but they believed they were being blessed by Baal and the worship of the idols of the land. So they attributed it to something other than God. But it was definitely a prosperous time. Time of prosperity, and yet it was the worst time 
in light of their spiritual darkness. So it was the best of time, but it was the worst of time because they are spiritually dark. The message of Yohazea is very unique because it highlights spiritual harlotry. It saturates the book with the language of spiritual harlotry. Oftentimes the prophets would speak to the king, but Hosea is addressing more the people and the the religious leaders. He's not stepping before a king like we see in other uh, prophets. The other prophets had to go before kings. Hosea's not. He's writing to the people. The sins of the northern kingdom that are going on right now, they were trusting God for their care. They were not trusting God for their care and protection. If you look back in reading the texts about what's going on during this time in 1 Kings, you'll see they're making treaties with the foreign nations. What did God tell them when they came into the land? Annihilate these other countries, annihilate these other nations, get rid of them. And yet Israel's making treaties to protect themselves with these nations, these foreign nations who did not love God. They were actually potentially sending a tribute to Assyria to try to protect themselves. What did God say about protecting them? Who was going to be their protector? It was going to be God. God had showed them over and over, I will protect you. I am your God. You are my people. I've brought you into this land to manifest myself and my power. And right now, Israel's denying all of that. They're trusting their own power. They're trusting their own wisdom. They have uh, significant wealth, like I said, but they attributed it as coming from their idols. And they're blind to their sin of forsaking God. And so Hosea's commission to picture for Israel through his marriage what Israel is doing to Yahweh. So Hosea's marriage is going to be a picture to the people of what God is doing or they are doing to God. And it's going to be a warning because Assyria is right on the horizon. Hosea is the last prophet to write to the northern kingdom before they go into captivity from Assyria. So judgment is coming, but God, uh, Hosea is still writing for them to return. Now, one thing I want you all to understand, and kind of for a lot of you it'll be reviewed, but I just wanted to go back over it really quickly, is Israel is a divided nation. And I want you to understand what that means. You know, when God brought them out of Egypt and he took them into the land, they were Israel. They were the 12 tribes, right? They were a whole nation before God. And this, again, you can look at on your sheets to kind of see how that plays out. But so what happened is if you read, and I'm not going to go over this because of time, but 1 Kings 11 through 14, if you read that, it will give you a little summary of what happened to cause the division between the two kingdoms. Because what happened is the tribes divided. You had two tribes, which would be the southern kingdom, and then ten tribes would be the northern kingdom. They split, and the southern kingdom was called Judah, And it had good kings, bad kings. It had kind of a mixture of both. And then the the northern kingdom is referred to as either Israel or Ephraim. Now, when you look at the northern kingdom and you look at the list of the kings there, it will tell you whether they're good or bad. Do you guys see any good kings on that list? No. The The northern kingdom's kings were all bad. They were all evil. And I thought it was also interesting. Um, Israel is called Ephraim. And Israel is the the northern kingdom, but it's called Ephraim 36 times in the book of Hosea. And I started thinking, I wonder why Ephraim. Now, it is the biggest tribe of the northern kingdom, 
the southern kingdom is called Judah, and Judah is the more prominent tribe in the northern, in the southern kingdom. But I thought, what else could be why it's Ephraim? Because some of the commentaries I read, when it talked about Ephraim, it talked Ephraim was known as being idolatrous and wicked. And I thought, why would that be? And so James actually, he's like, oh, well, didn't you know they set this up? And I said, well, I didn't know, so I went and studied it, so I do know. Um, It's nice to have somebody who, (laughs) you can ask things. (laughs) But one thing that he told me about Ephraim is that the very first king of Ephraim, Jeroboam I, okay, and you can see him on your list, um, Jeroboam I was the first king to be king over the northern kingdom. Well, when he got him into the northern kingdom, he made some actions that would, I think, put the northern kingdom on the trajectory toward evil, and it would solidify where they were going. But what he did, and I'm going to read this passage to you. It's in 1 Kings 12, verses 28 through 30. Um, He led them into a descent of spiritual idolatry. It said in verse 28, it said, After seeking advice, the king, Jeroboam, made two golden calves, and he said to the people, Is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Or it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Now, what's going on here? What is Jeroboam doing Where had God established the central place for worship within the nation of Israel? What had he established? The temple, right? The temple is where all of Israel was commanded to go for worship. And there were certain festivals that happened throughout the year. And the people were commanded to go up to Jerusalem or down to Jerusalem, depending on where they were, so that they could worship in that temple. Well, Jeroboam is saying that's too far for you to go. I don't want you to go all the way down to Jerusalem. So he develops his own place of worship for the people. And what does he bring to worship? He brings the golden calves, the idols. Jeroboam takes them straight into idolatry. As soon as they've divided from the southern kingdom, Jeroboam takes them straight into idolatry. It's a direct violation of God's law, and it's a directive that attacks the heart of God for his people. The temple served as a place where God and his people came together. They worshipped. They celebrated. The temple had the holies of holies there. That's where God was residing among his people. And yet Jeroboam said, no, don't go to the place where God is. Go to this other place where I'm going to give you your calves, your golden calves, and I'm going to make other idols for you to worship in because you shouldn't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem. It was directly against the heart of God and what God desired from his people. Now, he probably did that because he didn't want his people to be tempted to go back and start aligning with the southern kingdom. There was a division here. They hated each other. There was war. They had a civil war to break off from each other. But he had a total disregard for the will of God. And he would suffer the judgment of God because of this, for the role that he played in leading the hearts of the people away from Yahweh. And what you will see when you look at that list of kings, what you will see is when Israel had a godly king, they followed after godliness, at least outwardly. When Israel had an evil king, they embraced everything the evil king embraced. So when you look at the northern kingdoms, you realize all of their kings were evil. 
So they were on the trajectory toward idol worship and on the trajectory toward um, punishment from God. It was sin. And the sin, this apostasy, this abandoning of God is the root of the sin that would have taken Israel or Ephraim away from God and led them into the captivity, which would be their judgment that was coming. But I considered this as I was thinking about this. I thought, the sin of doubting God. How serious is the sin of doubting God? If you doubt, are you believing? No. When you doubt, you're not believing. What is apostasy? What was the sin of the Israelites? They didn't believe God. And I thought, we take it so trivially. It's like, oh, Lord, I'm anxious about this. And I not that I don't believe you. I'm just anxious. Well, what is anxiety rooted in? Doubt that God will really have the best for you. Doubt that you really understand his compassion for you, even if the outcome's not what you want. But it's rooted in doubt. Guys, doubt is the first step toward denying God, toward trying to solve the problems ourselves. Again, as I look at this in Hosea, it's like, We see ourselves in Israel. I don't have an idol that I've created that I'm worshiping, but I'm doubting God when I allow anxiety to rule in my heart, when I don't trust him, when I don't believe in his nature, when I don't believe that his word is true. I'm doubting God. And that's honestly the root of what the Israelites struggled with, is their doubt of God. Now what I want to do is cover the role of the prophet, Um, The role of the prophet was not an enviable position. I don't think any of us would want to be the prophet. Uh, He communicated God's word. He served as a messenger. And if it was a good prophet, a godly prophet, then his message was true. Now, a lot of false prophets also cropped up, but there was a test, God said. If even one of their prophecies does not come true, they're a false prophet and you can stone them. That's how serious it was. So if you thought you could be a false prophet and get away with it, God said no. Now, unfortunately, man said, oh, I like what they're saying better than what God's prophets are saying. So they didn't stone the prophets that were false. They tried to listen to him. And again, that led them more and more into sin and further away from God's truth. But God had a stamp of approval on the prophet that held his word and, and actually communicated God's word to the people. There were men and women who knew God's voice. They were basically human reporters of divine revelation. They upheld the covenant relationship. The prophets understood the covenant between God and the people of Israel. If you remember in um, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, we see a recounting of the covenant that God made with the people of Israel when they were together as a unified kingdom. They were getting ready to go into the land, and God had given them the the law at Mount Sinai. Um, And they, as they were getting ready to go into the law, or go into the land, they stood at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They divided the tribes into, and uh, the law was read to them. All of the law was read by Moses. And the people, in one voice, said, we will do this. We will make this covenant with God. They agreed to the covenant before God to be his people. But within that covenant, there were blessings for obedience, and there were curses for disobedience. But even with the curses, they said, if we do this, this is what we deserve. 
if we follow after these other gods, if we don't obey God, he said, when you go into the land, you get rid of the, the idols. You get rid of the high places. The high places were places of idolatry. It, God said, get rid of them. Demolish some of the, the nations that were in there. God said, totally destroy. Don't leave even one person left in that nation. Get rid of them because God knew that those nations would lead them away from himself. God had very strict requirements going into the land because they were going in reflecting God to the world. God was their God. And they were going into this land that he'd given them, this beautiful, prosperous land. And God said, I'll go before you and I'm going to give it to you. But there are conditions. If you obey my word, you will be blessed. If you disobey my word, you will be cursed. So you can imagine if Israel's in this time of prosperity right now, what are they attributing it to? God's blessing. But it's not because their hearts are far from him, but they don't even know how far their hearts are from God. So the prophets also had the job of correcting and warning the people. This meant that they were not friends of people that did not want to obey God's word. So if the king or the priests or any of the Israelites were wanting to walk in disobedience, they didn't like the prophets, and the prophets suffered. Many of the prophets were killed because the people didn't like their word. In Hosea, the word returned is used 23 times. As a prophet, Hosea is calling for the people of God to return and to repent. The, the kings listened to the prophets. But the kings didn't always like the prophets. Oftentimes the kings chased down the prophets and God only protected them because the king wanted to destroy them because the prophets said things they didn't desire. The prophets were also a standard of God's or a demonstration of God's authority. They could do miraculous signs. They could give accurate prophecies, but they demonstrated that what I'm saying is coming from God. Now, the life of a prophet was not easy. It was a very radical job. Um, God would call them to perform some really interesting actions. In Ezekiel, and I'm just going to list a few here just to make you think, I didn't want to be a prophet. Um, Ezekiel, he was commanded to lie on his left side for 390 days and on his right side for 40 days. Guys, one hour on my side, my shoulder hurts. (laughs) I could never have done 390 days. (laughs) But he did that to correspond with the years that Israel and Judah were sinful and unfaithful. So 390 days, Israel had been unfaithful. It's like that times, oh, how many years? is why it came down to the 390 days of their unfaithfulness. And then Judah, 40 days. So his lying on his side represented their disobedience to God. Um, Isaiah was commanded to walk around naked and barefoot. Oh, that would have been bad. Um, Jeremiah was instructed to make a wooden yoke, and he had to wear it around his neck. To demonstrate, again, all of these things demonstrated to the people the heart of the people. God was very visual with them, and he used the prophets to illustrate what God felt about what the people were doing. So the the life of a godly prophet was hard. They had to live out God's word through their life. They also, though, understood, and I hadn't really thought about this, but a prophet had to know the law. They understood the law because that's how they knew what sins were being committed against God. It's because they understood what the covenant was. They understood what the people of Israel, what they were bound by. They were sensitive to hearing God's voice because God would speak to them. They were sensitive to hearing his voice. 
but they also were very familiar with the geopolitical nature of Israel. Like if you remember when we studied Habakkuk, Babylon was coming up. That was the the, um, southern kingdom. And Babylon was on the verge of coming in and taking them off to captivity. And Habakkuk had to tell them, this is happening. There's no more time for repentance. Babylon's coming. And you're going to go off to captivity. And if you remember um, Habakkuk describing his emotion and his fear, because the Babylonians were terrible people. Well, in the same way, Assyria is on the doorstep. And Hosea knows it. And he knows that his words are not going to be what the people want to hear. But they're necessary because the prophets would hold Israel into account for the way they had turned their back on God's law. Hosea will bring up, as we read in his word, we're going to bring up incident after incident, showing them where they have broken God's law. And what's so interesting in the book of Hosea, and as you read through it, you'll see that you'll see verses on, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. This is all sin and judgment's coming. And then the very next verse is, but I'm going to give you mercy, mercy everlasting that will never be able to be taken away from you. But then you're going into judgment. It's like all through the book of Hosea, you see back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it just shows you a really interesting facet of God's nature. God's nature, he's faithful. Go back to the covenant. Go back to what the people entered into with God, that covenant to be his people. And with that covenant comes judgment and blessings. But the judgment is just as real as the blessings. God is faithful to his word, but he's also severe in his mercy. And Habakkuk shows us the severe uh, mercy of God. Israel was sinning. Hosea 7, 8, 9 says, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim's a cake not turned. Foreigners devour his strength, and he doesn't even know it. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he doesn't know it. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they don't return to the Lord. They seek after other gods. Israel doesn't even know how far into sin they are, how far removed they are from the grace of God. God has turned his back on them. They're attributing everything they're doing to their worship of the false gods primarily the worship of Baal instead of Yahweh. So the message that Hosea brings to the people is that they need to expect judgment. They're committing terrible adultery against God. They don't have a hope of coming back into his presence. As you get into your study, you'll see the really interesting names of the children that God gave Hosea. But something that really struck me is those children lived with those names their entire life. They never got to redo their name because this generation of Israelites is going into judgment. The hope is not for them. So the hope we read about in Hosea is not for the people that Hosea is ministering to. They're going into judgment, but God is faithful to his word. And there's a remnant of Israel that will come out and God will be faithful too. And he will restore them to himself. And that's the amazing hope that we see in the book of Hosea. There's also a really strong message of Christ in Hosea. And I want you to be on the lookout for Christ spottings. James and I have Sawyer spottings, our little grandson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're like, did you get a Sawyer sighting today? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. church, every now and then we'll get sightings. <laughs> but 
I want you, as you're doing your study of Hosea, look for Christ. Look for Christ in your study. Where do you see him? What parallels do you see of Christ? If you think about it, Christ was a prophet, right? He was the true prophet. He was the final prophet. Luke 4, Jesus points to prophet after prophet, and he says, a prophet's not um, not accepted in his hometown. Well, he's reference, referencing himself, how his ministry has been rejected. He's not rejected. And his brothers and everybody did reject Christ. And Christ said, that's because a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. He's paralleling himself to Elijah and Elisha. And he's forecasting his own rejection that's going to come from his people. Matthew 21, Jesus, when he enters into the temple, into Jerusalem, the people praise him as being the prophet. He's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The people recognized that he was a prophet. Many times in the New Testament, Jesus quotes from the book of Hosea. I challenge you as you're doing your lesson. Start thinking about where does Christ use in his quotes the book of Hosea. Hosea 6, 6, 6 is one of the most common um, quotes. It's where Hosea, in the book of Hosea, it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is straight from Hosea, and yet Christ himself said this. He desires the heart, and what does he do when he goes into the Sermon on the Mount? What does he emphasize? Does he emphasize the sacrifices and the the rituals? No. He emphasizes the heart of man. Christ wanted the heart, which was just the same message that the Israelites were given. God desired their heart. Guys, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament tie together. They don't teach separate things. They teach the same message, and that is that God desires our heart. He wants our obedience, but if you're obedient without a heart, you're just a legalist and you're a Pharisee. He wants our hearts. But the hearts that are divided, those are the hearts that will serve idols and think they're serving God. The people's hearts were so darkened by their spiritual adultery, they didn't have any problem with worshiping to Baal and thinking that, yeah, I think I'm pleasing God. They didn't have any problem doing that. Well, God is a jealous God. And it's not in a bad sense of jealousy. I remember um, listening to an interview of Oprah, and she said one thing that turned her off on um, the God of the Old Testament was because he was referenced as a jealous God. And she goes, I don't want my God to be jealous. That's evil. And I thought, oh, you have no clue what this means, what God's jealousy is. Our jealousies are petty. God's jealousy is holy and righteous and deserved. He deserves our undivided heart and he's jealous for that he wants it because he wants to be with us so strongly it's a jealousy that's pure our jealousy is usually not pure it's usually what i want and i want it over the cost of the other person god wants it from us because it's the best for us it's what he's created for us for god is jealous he does not want divided hearts so when you think of this marriage illustration, I um, thought about divided hearts. And I was listening to a podcast, and I thought, oh, that's a good illustration, so I'll use it. But it was like this guy, these two guys talking, and they said, well, it'd be like me going out to a bar after work. Now, I don't go to a bar after work. I don't encourage you guys to go to bars after work, but that's the example they use. So me going out to McDonald's after work, we'll do that. Um, I go to McDonald's, and you know what? There's a cute waitress at McDonald's, and she always serves me my coffee. And I really like her. In fact, I might even be in love with her, but I'm, I only stay there a little while because my, I really love my wife. So he comes home to his wife and he says, well, I was just with the woman that I kind of like over at McDonald's. 
but I really love you. Okay, how far is that going to get our husband? If he came home and said, but I love you more because look, I'm here now. <laughs> it's a divided heart. None of us would settle for that. If our husband came home and said, there's another woman I kind of love, but I love you more. No, that would not fly because we want our husband's loyalty. We want to be able to trust them. But that's what we're doing with God. When we have these other idols and we want to hang on to them, these are my pets. No, not pets, because I do love my pets too. But <laughs> these are my idols. These are the things I really love. And my pets might be in there too. <laughs> um, but I love God too. And so it's like I've got these plus God. And I'm content because I've divided my love. No, it's not wrong to have things you enjoy in this world. It's not wrong to have little pets that you love, that you take care of. But where's your loyalty? Where's your heart? God desires an undivided heart. He doesn't want me just to be happy saying, but God, I went to church for you. I went to Bible study for you. I'm even reading through the Bible this year for you. I'm doing all these things, but now is my time. He wants an undivided heart. He wants us desiring him. Israel had divided hearts. They worshiped God with their mouths, but their hearts were following the gods of the lands. And something that you realize is that the ministry of the prophets, all of them failed. The northern and the southern kingdom ended up both going into captivity because of their sins. The prophets did not stop them from entering captivity. They didn't stop the sins. So the prophets failed. But Christ, as the true prophet, didn't fail, right? He didn't. He's on the right, he's at the right hand of God right now, interceding because he is our true prophet, priest, and king. And he could do that perfectly for us because he lived that perfect life on earth and died to pay the penalty for our sin. So whereas the prophet's office, they failed, Christ did not. Now I want to talk a little bit about Israel's spiritual adultery. I know I'm hitting a lot of different things, but I I hope what it does is give you a basis for your study of Hosea. Because Hosea can be a little hard to read. The first time you read it, you're like, yeah, wow, I don't even really know what's going on there. But I'm hoping by giving you some more clarity, this will help as you read through it on your own, help you understand it a little bit better. But understanding the worship of Baal is really interesting. Um, Baal was the god of fertility. Uh, He was the god of fertility of the land, but also of the womb. So if you wanted babies, you prayed to Baal. If you wanted your land to be prosperous, you prayed to Baal. We saw that with Elijah, you know, when he was going off with the prophets of Baal. And they set up two idol or two um, sacrifices, ten places to sacrifice. And the Baal prophets, they pleaded and pleaded for their God to wake up, to burn the offering that they had laid down. When Elijah started laughing, saying, your God must be asleep because he's not answering. And then when Elijah called on God, God immediately sent down fire to burn because God is the real God. God is the true God. Baal is not. And so much of what God is picturing through Hosea's life is that I am the true God. Baal is not. You've given your affections to a piece of rock. And here I am, the powerful, all-knowing, all-sustaining God. And you've rejected me and you're trusting this piece of rock. 
So God is showing them who he is in light of who Baal is. Idol worship for them was like a technology. They used it to cure things. If they wanted children, they felt like all they had to do was go offer to Baal. Even to the point where some of their offerings were child sacrifices. They would do child sacrifices to get what they wanted because they thought that's what they had to do. It was definitely a solution. They saw it as, if I did this for Baal, then he will give me this. But it wasn't God's solution. God wanted their trust. He wanted their wholehearted, undivided devotion. When you think about Baal being necessary for fertility, it kind of gives you a little bit clearer understanding of why temple prostitution was so important. Temple prostitution, it was Baal's temple. And so if they were prostituting themselves with the prostitutes of the temple, they were awakening Baal to that need, to fertility. And so they would use as an excuse, obviously, talk about a a man-driven pleasure excuse. It's like, well, if I commit prostitution in the temple, then Baal is going to see this, and he will be aroused to help my wife have children. It was so perverted. It was so perverted. Who is the giver of life? You go back to Genesis. God is the giver of life, not Baal. God is the one that opens wombs or closes wombs. It goes all the way back to Genesis and what the people of Israel were doing. They were denying the very foundation of marriage by entering into temple prostitution. It was such a defilement to what God had designed. And it was all done to appease Baal. But what was it doing to God? And it just it shows you how spiritually dark their hearts were. The seriousness of their sin was as serious as the Canaanites when they went into the land. And God said, those people are sinful. And we saw back in Habakkuk and in Deuteronomy, the sin of the land. The Israelites were as sinful as those nations. They had lowered as low as they could be. Even more so, though, because they knew God. God had revealed himself to them. And they were rejecting him. They were the height of their prosperity, but they were equating it all to other gods. Hosea 2.8, it says, She did not know that it was I, God, who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished her silver and gold. They used this for Baal. Israel's guilt was established as a a basis for the judgment that was coming. She had not acknowledged Yahweh as the source of her prosperity. Yahweh is in control not Baal, and yet they worshipped Baal, and they were blind to their spiritual adultery. So what do we see about God in Hosea? We see God's love. Amazingly, all that Israel does to him, we still see God's love. They have so deeply broken the covenant with him, but because they've so deeply broken the covenant with him, God says, I will divorce you. He divorces himself from Israel. And even to this day, he remains divorced from Israel because it's the church age. He's bringing in other people into the body, into the body of Christ. But there will come a day where he's going to reunite himself to Israel, not just reunite, but he's going to remarry and recovenant with Israel. And there's going to come that day. But right now, what we're seeing in Hosea is that God's love is so deep. And we see the depth that he will go to 
to show his love for people that totally turned their back on him. We see God's faithfulness. He's faithful to his word. Hosea is commanded to be faithful to this woman. Um, Hosea is commanded to love Gomer and be faithful, and Hosea does that. Hosea puts his love on her to show that God, in the midst of, of Israel's spiritual infidelity and immorality and adultery, God still loves them. But he will still allow them to go into judgment. God's pursuit of his people... Hosea vividly shows us how serious God is on pursuing his people. Even after Gomer's unfaithfulness, Hosea is instructed to go back and get her and to love her and to bring her back. God will go to great lengths to pursue his people. Guys, he goes to great lengths to pursue us, doesn't he? He pursues us. He seeks to allure us back. I love the language that we'll see in Hosea next in two weeks. God chooses to allure them. He's drawing them. He's wooing them. He's not forcing them. He's not like this mad husband. I can't believe he did that again. He's loving them. He's wooing them back to himself. And that's what we'll see in Hosea. Then redemption, love, and restoration. The book emphasizes the redemptive nature of God's love. Despite their disobedience and their unfaithfulness, God will redeem them. Hosea 14.4 says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. But just in the same way that it shows his love, Hosea also shows us judgment and discipline. Justice is God. God is justice. God is his is going to be faithful to his word. Going back again to the covenant, what did they say? If you do these things, these things will happen, and God will be faithful. And if you go on and read chapter 29 and 30, one of those chapters, it details the judgment that's going to come on the people of Israel, and it is sobering. It is sobering because these nations that will take them into captivity are evil people. And um, what they say they do to the people is... How can you explain how that's okay, except that God is righteous, God is holy, God is just. Sin must be paid for. I want us, as we look through our study of Hosea, I want to watch for obedience, points of obedience to the Lord. I want you to see the painful and the difficult choices that Hosea has to make. And then think about how do these choices portray God? His commitment, not only to nation, to the nation of Israel, but to us. What do you see about Christ in Hosea? What do you see about God's love toward us in Hosea? I think Hosea is going to show us timeless themes of redemption, restoration, and the beautiful, enduring nature of God that will leave an indelible imprint on our hearts after we've studied this book. So let me go ahead and close in prayer. And then you guys will have a little bit of time at your table. Our dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to open the book of Hosea. Lord, I pray for you, these ladies as they um, just spend time encouraging one another around the word here. Lord, I pray that you would guide their conversations. Lord, I pray that every lady here would just desire to spend time in your word. Lord, they would just commit to... Um, doing their lesson, Lord, to being prepared, but trusting you, God, to give them the strength because I know it's so easy to get busy and exhausted and life life carry, it has burdens, Lord. 
So I just pray that you would help them to be faithful, come alongside them and strengthen them, Lord, so that they can persevere in this study. God bless the time around your word. I just pray that it would be um, just gems from your word, Lord, would be locked in our hearts. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.